a Lifetime original podcast. I swear it had a little country twang to it. It is kind of a little bit, I guess. When there's something strange in your neighborhood, dun, 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 who are you going to call? Ghostbusters! Yeah, that's exactly it. I hear you. That's it. That's a cute little ditty. Hey y'all, welcome to a special episode of The Table Is Ours, the podcast where we talk about all things Black, that's Black entertainment, Black legacy, and Black culture. And with me today is the best co-host there ever could be, guys. It's Kirby Dixon. If Kirby were a movie character, she would be the best friend. And let me explain, let me explain, let me explain. Girl, you done made me a side, John. No, 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 You're not a sidekick. <laughs> you, you do not have sidekick energy, okay? You have main character energy. But the best friend in the series, they always are the most put together, the most loyal, the brightest. Like, they are the light, right? The main character messes up all the time, okay? Yeah. You don't mess up. You got type A energy, okay? Yeah. And it's not sidekick energy. It's main character energy. It's that main character energy where you're like, I want her story. And you fight with production and you're like, she should get a lead role. That's what it is. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. I could be lurking in the shadows for a little bit until the true talent shines. Yeah. I'll take that. You're, you're like, uh, you know, did you ever watch Victorious with Ariana Grande? No, I never just, watched Victorious. Oh, that show was so good. But Ariana Grande was a side character. Everyone was like, oh, they're like, why is she not a main character? A lead. I hear you. So that, that, that would you, you're the Ariana Grande of the, the series. Thank you. Next. <laughs> I will take that. I will take that. <laughs> And y'all know who that is. That is my girl, Amira Lawali. If Amira were a movie character, she would be. You know what? I know you want to be the villain, but you would be the comic relief. Like, you are the Kelly in my film. You are the Kelly of Insecure, the person that has the best lines, the naturally funny, the quirky, like really quick wit, quick on your feet thinking, that is you. You are definitely like the comic relief of the film. I like that and I appreciate <laughs> that. I feel seen. See? I love that. Yeah, you you take that because that is, that's the energy that you give. You are the Kelly of my film. <laughs> oh, well, in the spirit of having main character energy, Amira, mm-hmm. the few couple of guests that we've had on this season have me thinking a lot about reboots, specifically black reboots in television, and how there haven't been enough of them. There's still some that I feel like deserve a second chance and deserve for the younger generation to see what it was that we loved so much about them. So I want to ask you if you could reboot any black sitcom in television which one would you reboot? This is very, very easy. Okay. Like, and if you know me, you know exactly what it is. It is my favorite show of all time, Living Single. I thought you were going to say Living Single. Let me tell you why. Because if you really know the tea, you know the reboot of Living Single was whitewashed into Friends, which means mm. the pure content was there. Living Single is it is a prototype, okay? Mm-hmm. Living Single. Yeah. That is like, I just, I love that show. The friend dynamic of the show. The only thing that would be hard is like, I know reboots usually aren't better than the original. Yeah, they're usually not as good. Yeah. That's my only reason why I wouldn't reboot it because that show I still rewatch constantly. It's Mm -hmm. just like, that was like, Insecure shows very real Black people to me now. Living Single, all of those characters were very real. And maybe it's 
because we were in our in New York in our twenties, it just feels like I know who they are. Who did you relate to the most? Maxine, girl. I knew you were gonna say Maxine. Maxine Shaw. Okay. I like, oh, I post her all the time because her energy, her plus she go birth who I am. Like that mm-hmm. is genuinely who my personality is. That hottie with the body energy, <laughs> that career first, letting men put them in their place. Let them know. Let them know. Maxine Shaw is was like the only goal that I was like, I want to be her. You are Maxine and Maxine is you. She's fast. She was smart. She's quick. She's cute. I love her. Yes. That's a great <laughs> one for you. I totally see this. I totally have this in the cards for you. What show would you reboot? Hmm. If I had to reboot a sitcom. Okay, so the one that comes to mind is probably something like the Jamie Foxx show. Mm, I love the Jamie Foxx show. Like, I loved just the energy of it. I loved the comic relief, the real storylines. The characters were all pretty well developed, had their own, like, worlds that they were navigating through. I just remember that being a staple of, like, my TV watching at the time. I know we're also getting a reboot of Fresh Prince, which is definitely a staple being from Philly. Yeah, but it's not going to be funny. It's not going to be a comedy. Yeah. I don't want a reboot of the Fresh Prince. Like, I just, for me, it's like Uncle Phil. It's Will. It's, like, Hillary. It is Tatiana Ali. It is Carlton, okay? Like, you can't redo that natural talent to me. Okay, but see, here's my question to you on the Fresh Prince now. Yeah. Because this reboot's different. It's not a comedy. It's a dark, maybe comedy, dark drama that I think what's inspiring is that it came out of just some random creative who wasn't part of the system that made like a little sizzle for it. Yeah. So that's cute. Like, I feel like this may be interesting because it's not like we can compare them. I'm excited for it, but it's not exactly a reboot. So maybe that's better. I just wish it wasn't called The Fresh Prince. Like, call it something a little different, you know? Because the expectation is for people that remember and grew up with that sitcom, it's going to be some version of that. And I think shows definitely need to evolve and grow. And, you know, you have different creatives. The same people aren't here. They've grown. Like, DJ Jazzy Jeff, like all these people. But then don't call it the same thing. Because my expectation is going to make me a very harsh critic when it's not supposed to be the same at all. Okay, you know what I'm realizing, though? Uh Uh-oh. We have another reboot that's coming soon that I think is going to feel the same because it's animation. The Proud Family. Yeah. Yes, we talked to Kyla Pratt last season. Yeah. Wait, I know it's fun. They finally have a date. But I feel like this animation gets grace because it's just different. Like, it can be similar in a different way and we can still respect it. Well, yeah, because you also see these, like, fictional characters grown and you don't know what that looks like. So it's going to be completely, I think, enjoyable. I think for the most part, everyone sounds the same. Original cast is back on board. So those iconic voices that we know and love are going to be there still. I'm just glad they did not kill off Sugar Mama because I know the put world would be upset. In the game, I said, yes. put my grandbaby in the game. You know who I want to see? <laughs> I want to see the gross sisters. That's who oh. I want to see. But see, they would have to evolve them because there's been some controversy over. Yeah, why they're blue? <laughs> why they're blue? Why they're ashy? Why yeah. they're yeah. So I'm wondering if they would have them because the recent controversy of that. Well, what's the opposite of it? What do you call them? The the grown sisters now? <laughs> I don't know, man. May- oh, that'd be funny. If they were just baddies. Like, baddies, but like corporate execs. And they were so good with money, you know? They're accountants. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. how I see the new... Entrepreneurs. The, yeah. They're entrepreneurs. Yeah. That's hilarious. That'd be good. Yeah, no, I think that's going to be really, really good. Yeah. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. But speaking of reboots and speaking of our favorite television, Kirby, we had a treat this week. For this special episode, one of the greats, one of the original icons of the original Ghostbusters. Yes, the black original Ghostbuster. <laughs> the reason Ghostbusters is diverse. Yes, the sole reason. Ernie Hudson. Yes, Mr. <laughs> Ernie Hudson. Listen, he deserves all his flowers and then some. That is why he is our special episode for this week. In case you do not know who Ernie Hudson is outside of Ghostbusters, Ernie Hudson is an American actor also known for his roles in HBO's Oz, Netflix's Grace and Frankie, BET's Family Business, as well as the infamous film The Crow. We had the ultimate sit down with Mr. Ernie Hudson about perseverance against the Oz and having faith in your path. He's featured in the new film Ghostbusters Afterlife, which came out in theaters today, November 19th. Run, don't walk to go see it, y'all. And we got some exclusives on his experiences, both good and bad over 30 years as an original Ghostbuster. And again, the only black Ghostbuster in the film. Ernie Hudson, y'all, let's get into it. Good morning. How are you? I'm very good. A little still sleepy, but I'm fine. Thank you. Good morning. Oh my gosh, same. We're so happy to have you. Welcome to The Table is Ours. Yes. We like to start every podcast with the same question, and that is, what brought you joy this week? Huh, what brought me joy? I've been traveling a lot for work and I bought this house about eight months ago. I was so happy when I was able to get home. For me now, it's the little things that uh, you normally overlook. I think that was that brought me joy. I agree. I used to be in New York before the pandemic and I kind of gave up my apartment and I felt like I didn't have my own space for a while. Mm -hmm. Now that I'm settled, like I feel at peace, like it's a joy to be in your own space again. Mm -hmm. Right. There's a lot to be said for that. And I, I grew up, we lived in a project that we had our apartment. So I had my room. So I've always had my space with my stuff. Mm -hmm. And so when I see or I hear stories of people who are homeless or kids who grew up without that, I can't imagine. Because the one thing I had was, you know, my space. And uh, that's always been really important to me. You know, I, I travel a lot and I'm in somebody else's or, but it's nice to say this is, I identify with this and it's something comforting about it. Yeah. It's nothing like having your own. <laughs> you know, when Amir and I were told that we were going to be speaking with you, we were super excited because you are a black entertainment legend. You have over 200 credits in film, TV, theater, from Ghostbusters to Grace and Frankie to family business. Like I could go on and on and on. But your origin story and how you grew up is not as conventional and not something that's widely known. So just to kick it off, can you kind of tell us how Ernie Hudson became Ernie Hudson? Well, thank you for the legend part. <laughs> but I, I was born in Benton Harbor, Michigan. I'm sure nobody would argue that it's probably one of the poor towns in the country. My mom had left her husband 
moved to East St. Louis, met my father and got pregnant. And I hope it was more romantic than that, but that's what happened. <laughs> so uh, there was a lady who befriended my mom and who got sick and my mom was sort of caring for her. And the lady had tuberculosis, which was the most contagious, deadly disease at the time. A lot of people were dying from it. And so the lady died and my mom contracted tuberculosis while she was carrying me. So oh when gosh. she got really sick, she came up north where her mom and sister's family had moved to southwestern Michigan to uh, give birth to me. I was born in December. My mom died in March from tuberculosis. But my grandmother raised me. And so from now on, when you, when you hear me say mom, I'm talking about my grandmother. Mm -hmm. My grandmother raised me and my brother, who I guess what people would consider half-brother. Because I was born the way I was, I never knew my father which always bothered me because friends, even though if their dad didn't live with them, they knew who he was, you know, they had an idea. Even my brother knew who his dad was, but I didn't know who my father was. And so uh, my grandmother gave me his dad's name, Hudson, so that me and my brother would always sort of be together. So it's not really my, my name. A few years ago, my son, my eldest son, got on Ancestry.com and found my father's family and found I had a brother and two other sisters. That just happened recently. Wow. But um, so I grew up without a dad. And so we grew up in this town. We were kind of the first to integrate the city schools. And that was sort of where I grew up. But my grandmother was very religious. So I, I would say, uh, they say you grew up on the streets. You know, I grew up in my house, school, and the church. So I went to church probably for something seven days a week, <laughs> never thinking about, you know, becoming an actor or necessarily anything until I was in my last year of high school. And I realized that this was my life. And if I don't do something, I, you know, I'm going to get lost or left behind. And so I decided after you know, graduating to join the Marine Corps, which I did, but then I have asthma. So I was discharged after 10 weeks. So that plan didn't work. Aww. So, uh, so I'm back in the projects with my grandmother. I'm living at, you know, and it's in her, her place, basically. And then I, there's a girl I met before I went to the military, and uh, I was sort of seeing her. She had a bad family situation. And so I told her she didn't have to deal with that, that uh, we could get married. I'm not sure if I actually meant it when I said it. I was being <laughs> nice. <laughs> and she said, okay. And so... Um, <laughs> We got married. Ernie, we talk a lot about scamming on this podcast, and I think that was a scam. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I, I, and I, I remember going, I remember going home and telling my grandmother, my grandma said, no, no, you're not, you know, no, you go back and tell the girl, you ain't getting married. You would know that is not going to happen. So I said, you know, uh, that thing about getting married, you know, maybe we should wait because, you know, we're kind of young. She says, no, you lied to me, you lied. And you just, you know, you're just like my mom and everybody else. And so. So we got married. An actress. Uh, yeah, boy, I tell you. Oh, my gosh. Wait, you got married? <laughs> we got married. We got married. And she was uh, actually, she hadn't quite turned 16. She had a few months ago to be 16. And I was 18. And we were living in the projects with my grandmother. No plans of doing anything. I got a job working in a foundry. I was the first person working in this, this factory called Coval Manufacturing. A little blurb in the newspaper saying that Coville Manufacturing, which is 100 years old, hired the first Negro, and uh, which was me. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I, I went to work as a janitor there, and uh, suddenly I, I just saw my life sort of, it's over. But I'm saying all this to say 
how I became an actor, my grandmother, one of the things she said to me that when she was so adamant about it was, we don't know who your earthly father is, but God is your father. And she really stressed mm -hmm. it. Now at church, they say that all the time. All the time, yeah. And I said, yeah, mama, but God is everybody's father. And she said, that's true, but everybody don't know it. And I'm mm -hmm. telling you, so you will always know it. For me as a kid, I really, really believed that and still believe it. And so if God is my father, then there's really no need to worry. And she said, God is personal. You know, it's not like somebody, something in the sky and, you know, you're one of a billion people that is personal and that you could ask. And so the hardest thing for me was deciding what I wanted to ask for. And once I was really clear on that, then I just trust God, the universe. But uh, it led me to theater. And once I found theater, I knew that this was home. Once I found what I wanted to do, I knew that I had to lay a good foundation. When you found what you wanted to do, was your family supportive of it? No. Like, how did they see the arts? My family was saying, whatever stupid stuff you got going on, you better get this job. and Make money. Make money. I got into college, which wasn't easy because I graduated from high school with a 1.7 average. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I got turned down everywhere. I got turned down in every school, but I finally got into college and I had to take an elective. So I took this theater class. And when I literally, when I walked on stage, I just knew I was home. First, I had never even considered that. We moved to Detroit. And uh, we got into this awful, stupid argument. You, know, you get into arguments, it's not even <laughs> a big argument. You don't even know what you're fighting about, but it's annoying. And so I had to get out of the house and I got in the car and I just, I just had to get away. And I'm driving around and I see this building. It looks like a theater, but it wasn't a movie theater. And there were a line of people lined up to get in. And out of curiosity, I just said, what's going on? They said, it's a play. I'd never seen a play before, a professional play. And so I just thought, I, I don't want to go home. So I got in line <laughs> and I went in and the curtain came up and it was this play at the Detroit Repertory Theater. And I was so just blown away by, it. I mean, it was just, it was just amazing. And after I sat there, after the theater cleared, and I just thought, God, you know, that is, I mean, it was like a prayer that was too big to even pray. I mean, mm -hmm. that was like to be able to do that. I just knew I was home. I mean, I had to take care of my family because by then now I got a couple of kids and we're just, you know, making it. But I always knew how to hustle. I always knew how to, to make money. Wait, so question. You had a couple kids. You come to your wife and you're like, I want to do the arts. What does she say? The wonderful thing about, and, and I, I will always love her and appreciate uh, Mike's wife because she was the one who really gave me permission because I always felt like I got to work, you know, I got to do what I got to do. And my wife had said, no, you know, you, you, you love this. And why don't you do that? And I said, well, because, you know, actors, they can't make any money. You know, in fact, the custodians at movie theaters make more money than the actors do mm -hmm. over a year's period. And she said, yeah, but you're already broke. So you're not going to lose money. So, <laughs> so do what you do. And that was in 66 or 67 or somewhere in there. And I've always managed to make a living from then on. Once I totally committed, I've never had to work outside of, you know, little hustling things here and there, but I've always made a living as an actor for all these years. When we come back, Ernie shares his true feelings about race and diversity in the Ghostbuster films. Y'all won't want to miss this. It gets juicy, y'all. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I can relate to kind of feeling that bug and that spark and knowing that no matter (laughs) what happens, you just have to see it through and pray that it works out. Because I just remember, you know, going to the theater with my family in New York and even like sitting in the movie theaters with my dad. And I think it was at the impetus of when like Transformers was coming out and being so like entranced and amazed at the way that entertainment and art specifically can completely take you to this world that you didn't know even existed. And that's what really sparked me to want to get into like the entertainment industry. But it's interesting in hearing kind of your origin story and and all of the, I want to say, changes in this industry that you've been able to to work through. I feel like we're in a little bit of a renaissance in TV and film for black television specifically, right? Yes, black creators yeah. are at the forefront, the top of their game. We're setting trends. They're finding new ways to tell stories and to tell black stories. And when we think of black storytellers, we think of you, we think of Issa Rae, we think of Tyler Perry and all of these incredible names having kind of worked through the changes in the entertainment industry. How important do you think it is for black creators to kind of own and create the stories that they want to be told. I mean, we're very diverse. I mean, they say black and people assume that we're all this one, you know, mass of people who think alike and whatever. And of course, that's not even close. That's not true. If somebody had told me that we television and even film or entertainment would be as diverse as it is right now, and I know there's a long way to go, nobody would have believed that. You know, yeah. when I started, it was like, well, they won't let you and you will never be able to. And so... I feel like tokenism was probably at an all-time high then. It's like, okay, we got one. Yeah. And we're good. Well, there were some things happening and then um, Roots came out, which is the biggest thing on television ever. And we were like, wow, now finally we've proven, you know, we're going to go to work, which scares me sometimes because, you know, the powers that be, they they can you know, God given and they take away. Absolutely, yeah. So we have to really trust ourselves, not just in terms of being able to do it, but in terms of being able to generate what is what's necessary to make it happen and not be dependent on someone else giving us a break. You've been in the entertainment industry for so long. So is there anyone, director or EP, that is on your wish list to work with? There's so many people I admire and, and uh, who've done some amazing work. John Singleton, I really love his work. He's not here anymore. But uh, there's some wonderful filmmakers who are doing some great things. At my age now, I just kind of do it because it's something that might be kind of fun and interesting. I went to Yale School of Drama, and I thought I was going to be this, uh, I was going to produce, I was going to write, I was going to do all these things. 
But then I hit Hollywood and those things didn't feel open. And I was a single dad because that marriage ended and I ended up with the kids. So I took the kids and came to California. And so I just really focused on acting. How was balancing being a single dad in California and getting your acting career off? Like, how was that balance? Well, uh, I'd gone to Yale. I had spent a year there and then uh, the marriage is just, uh, just really falling apart. So I came out to California. A friend was producing a Lonnie Elder play. And then my wife announced that she, she wasn't taking the kids. And not having a dad, I could not say no. I mean, I, I had to take my boys. Yeah. But when we came and we got a little, I had a little uh, one bedroom apartment. I slept on the couch. The kids took the bedroom and we got by. I mean, there were a lot of things going on, but I had to be there with the kids. I, it, it gave me a, a motivation that I, I wouldn't have had otherwise. I mean, I'd go into an interview and I knew it didn't go quite, and I would refuse to leave until I felt they saw what I could do. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Because I needed the job. I had my kids, my kids were, you know, my sons were there and I wanted to demonstrate to them what's possible. And even though my family was saying, you need to quit that acting thing and you need to get a job, I felt, how can I say to my sons, you can dream and do what you want to do if I can't, you know, follow my dream and do what I believe in. I find it really interesting in the period that you grew up in, because you're saying being in entertainment and in Hollywood was so close to Black performers and Black talent. What type of prejudices did you experience them? And what was that motivation that kept you going at an industry that was not open to Black talent at the time? Well, a lot of my friends who started out or who were there when I came into the industry would end up walking away angry because of what the industry didn't do or what they should have done and what they could have done mm -hmm. and, and the prejudice and all the stuff that I was aware of. But once again, you know, the Bible says, put not your trust in man. And so my grandmother always emphasized that, you know, my job is to ask and to be prepared. So I never really, I don't trust the industry. I never did. I don't trust it now, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but my blessings have always come from places, people that I didn't even imagine, people that I didn't even know about. Who gave you your first shot? And it seems like spirituality and faith is really what pushed you forward. But who was that person that, that gave you that first chance? Well, the first chance that I got was Gordon Parks. Gordon Parks did Sounder and he did mm -hmm. Shaft and mm -hmm. he did, but he had, he did a movie called uh, The Learning Tree. Mm -hmm. And then he was doing this movie called Lead Belly. And I was really trying hard. I was staying in my brother's house and sleeping on the couch. And I went to a party. I met this actor who was in room 222, Michael Constantine. I didn't know Michael, but he was an actor. And so I was doing a play and I saw him. And so I just went up to him and say, hi, I'm Ernie Hudson. I'm here and I'm at, and uh, you know, you have an agent Will you introduce me to your agent, which was totally inappropriate, but I didn't know, I didn't care. I'm like, I just got to right. find somebody. <laughs> and he said, yeah. So he called his agent because because that and, is uh, not a normal sentiment in this industry. I know, no, I love it, that though. Things don't, uh, like I said, you can't plan it because it doesn't work that way. You just kind of, something motivated me to go up and just ask him. And I gave him my number and he says, well, I talked to my agent and so he'll meet with you. So I go to this, this agent's office and the agent, uh, he makes me wait like three and a half hours, even though he's there, but he makes mm -hmm. me sit there. Then I finally go in and he says, uh, I said, before you say anything, I'm only seeing you because Michael 
asked me to. He's one of my best clients, but I'm going to tell you right now, there's no work here for you in Hollywood. So go back to Detroit or wherever the hell you come from, but you're not going to work here. Just by looking at you. Just by looking at me. Yeah, just that's it. It's <laughs> not going to happen. Leave. Yeah. And I don't have time. And so I sat there kind of humiliated and I, I took out a picture and resume and I said, can I give you uh, this in case anything ever comes up? Maybe you can. He says, what do I want to do with that? I, I, I hate to curse, but he said, he said, what am I going to do with that shit? He said, I get this in the mail every day. And he holds up his trash can and it's like all these envelopes of people sending their pictures in. And I was just crushed. Yeah. He was testing you. He was he, testing you. Yeah. The universe was, because I, I, I borrowed my brother's car. I drove, I parked. And when I walked out the door, I've been trying so hard and I just, I just lost it. I just started crying. It was just like the lowest point. I met at that party a girl named Tony Parks, and she gave me her number, and I just couldn't go back to my brother's house. I just could not, just couldn't do that. So I called her, and she said, well, come over. And I went over to the house and sat there and drank. And two days later, I find out that somebody's been calling, uh, and I just, and my niece was answering the phone and hanging up. But they called, and it was Paramount Pictures calling. Uh, because Gordon Parks wanted to see me, mm -hmm. which was kind of, well, I found out later, Tony Parks was Gordon Parks' daughter. And so that picture that I was holding on to, <laughs> I went in her house and I sat it on her piano, not knowing because, and I just, uh, and so that night he came over to dinner and he saw my picture and resume and saw that I had gone to Yale and uh, they called me and um, he was doing this movie called Lead Belly and they wanted to see me and I went in and he said, um, there's a race. Can you ride a horse? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I can, I can ride a horse. I barely hadn't been around horses. Uh, <laughs> and he says, well, and there's a big dance number. You're going to have to be able to dance. Are you a dancer? I'm not a dancer. I'm the worst dancer. But I said, oh, yeah, no, I can, I can dance. So he says, well, okay, wait out. In the... And so as I was walking out of the room, I couldn't lie. I, just, so I said, uh, Mr. Parks, uh, about that, um, you know, the horse thing, I don't know how to ride a horse, but I can learn. I can learn. I can really learn. He said, uh, Okay, okay. So just wait out there. You know what? That's what it is, though. Just believing that you can do it and then figuring out how to do it in the background and then performing. Yeah. Like, that's honestly the best way to get in. I mean, that's what I was going to say. The theme that Amir and I have adopted for this season is how to be bold and how to be audacious. Yeah, and how to be honest. I think part of bold, audacious, and come from that integrity. I mean, to, to be able to, I mean, I could have faked it. But May Chong, I can't dance. And he said, okay. So he still gave me that opportunity. I think you got to stand on your truth and your integrity because it's all you really have. And I think the industry is constantly asking you to barter with that. Yeah, that's true. To do this thing and, and you know, say, so well, I'll just do this now, you know. So that's a good point. Is there any moment where you had to like barter with your standards? Like it was your standards were tested and you were like, I cannot stoop this low. Like I will not push these boundaries. Yeah, no, I mean, there's been parts, you know, that you just go, I can't do it. But also, I'm a dad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, your standards and your morals shift. The first TV series I got was a television series called Highcliffe Manor. Mm -hmm. And I needed this job. So I go in and I, I nail it. I'm reading and, they, and they're, they're laughing. And finally, I get the job. And, and my friends were having a little party. I got this series. They're paying me $3,000 a week, which is, was you know, at the time it was like- That's I mean, a lot it was, of money. Yeah. It was, it was, yeah, I mean, yeah. So so we got this party and the music going, everybody's celebrating and Cheryl Lee Ralph, I mean, you know, Cheryl, probably she's, yeah, yeah Cheryl's an act. Cheryl I screamed and suddenly everybody stopped and music stopped. 
She says, oh my God, she's reading scripture. I know you're not going to do this. And I said, what? So then I had to look at the script, what I was doing. So it was about a, this character's name was Bambo. Um, he had gold teeth. Every other line was no sabuana, buana, it was all this buana stuff. <laughs> so, so I'm like, I need this job. I'm doing this job. I don't care. You know, so so I went to uh, we're rehearsing and I did, and they're laughing, but I felt like they're laughing at me. My head was shaved, that earring. And finally I just said, you know what? I can't do this. And so I know I got friends who would who would die to get this role but I can't do it. And so thank you. I appreciate, you know, but I, I can't. And I left. Mm -hmm. And so the next day they called and said, well, you know, we thought about it. What would it take? And I said, well, first up, Bambo sounds like Sambo and, and the, the earrings and the, the gold teeth and all that stuff. It's like, and Juana, who the hell says Juana? I mean, I, they said, well, he's from South Africa. I said, yeah, but it, no, I can't do that. So mm -hmm. they changed the part, which is one first I learned that sometimes you just need to speak up and just say, mm -hmm. be willing to walk. And so the character's name was Smythe. He was a voodoo priest from South Africa, but but what if he what if he graduated from Oxford? And so mm -hmm. he was a voodoo priest who graduated from Oxford. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but they made it palatable so I could do it. Ernie, it's refreshing to chat with you because I feel like you signify the importance of authenticity in the industry. But fast forward, right? We're moving to this point now. What does it feel like looking back at your career so far to see yourself be supported and recognized and backed so much by the Black community and by the industry as a whole? Like, what does that feel like for you? I think I've always been supported by the Black community, but not necessarily by the Blacks who are in power. And I say this mm, as I'm okay. talking to you guys. I was talking to a doctor once. He said, yeah, I know you, man. I, I like your work because you're always the guy who goes in and save the white people. And I'm like, what? He said, yeah, think about it. You know, in Ghostbusters, you came in. And the cowboy way, you came in and saved them. And he started naming all these things. I'm like, well, I'm kind of go was that wasn't my design, but those were the jobs. And so. But you still hold a purpose in the industry and you're recognized for that. I hope so. But you mentioned, okay, now we got to talk about Ghostbusters because you mentioned okay. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned it and it is something we're curious about, right? Like being the only black Ghostbuster. Yeah. Okay. Let's be real. And it also still being a really iconic film. And from when you were first in Ghostbusters to the rendition that's coming out now, what was the difference between you being the only black Ghostbuster then? Because I want to hear this story about why you weren't on the poster. And <laughs> like, it's almost like it feels like redemption now. Like, what's the difference? And what was it like being on the film then versus now? Well, Parade Magazine this weekend ran a big cover. Ghostbusters showed the new Ghostbusters and showed the old Ghostbusters. Mm -hmm. So uh, I can explain to you a little bit of why I wasn't on the poster and the original Ghostbusters almost 40 years ago. But I cannot explain to you why I wasn't on the poster now. Yeah. That's, you know what I'm saying? Because in all this diversity stuff, I'm like, really? They're still putting out this, you know? I was going to say, Ernie, you should have been front and center bigger exactly. than everybody else. <laughs> I, you know. That's the question that needs to be answered. I went on L. Roker, who's a fan of Ghostbusters, invited me to do the Today Show. And I'm on there and they said, we have a Ghostbuster quiz. And, um, and so we have a gift for you. And there's a bag of little Ghostbuster things. I'm sitting there on the show and I look in the bag and it's um it's the toys like three toys but everybody's toy but mine and then there's a, a t-shirt and the t-shirt is four Ghostbusters but it was Danny Aykroyd twice what yeah wow. Danny Aykroyd I mean 
I'm like, okay, somebody, I don't know. And, I, and I'm feeling so, because when you feel so off, if I say something now, it's going to come out, it's going to come out like I'm feeling. But that seems purposeful at that point. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and I think so. And I had a lot of issues with Ghostbusters when we first did it. And, and I think probably, uh, I don't think anybody would own up to it. Sometimes I've gone into things and they wanted a certain thing. I didn't see the character a certain way. I just saw the character as a guy who's looking for a job and that's who he is. I don't think he needs to be hipper or a jiver or whatever. I just, and I think the reason the character resonated with so many kids, black, white, a lot of kids identify because he's just sort of an average guy. He's not some scientist or whatever. So, and I can't say that they would have wanted me to play it because back then, you know, people felt you had to be this whoever. And I, I didn't see the character that way. I just thought he's, he's who he is. Yeah. So it was hard because, you know, the, the script that I first got was not script that we shot. And I felt that it was like in a deliberate attempt to include him, but not include him. Like downplay his role a little bit. You know, and now in all fairness to Ivan Reitman, who produced and um, directed the first two movies and his son is doing the new movie. And I consider him a friend and Ivan does not see it that way, you know, and I know and I realize now because now that I'm producing as well as acting. He was seeing it from a producer's point of view. You got Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd and Harold, who are well-established in the industry. They're already starring. And I'm this new guy who comes in. And so to them, it made sense to let's give it all to these guys because they're the ones who's going to sell the movie. And we need Ernie to be, you know. But see, this is where I'm going to bite back because as a producer yeah, on the network side, I cannot imagine not including a lead in that like I cannot it's not just me as a black woman I cannot see anyone on my team seeing a poster and not seeing you and not calling it out right so like I understand giving him grace as a friend but as another person in the industry I think that's a fault it's a big hole and it honestly kind of reveals it reveals how he sees the world a little bit because I would never Not to mention, you lift up your legends. And as somebody who was in the first Ghostbusters, who was a critical and crucial point of that, why would you not want to highlight that even more? Because I think the slightedness that you had received in the first release is well known. It has been questioned Mm -hmm. throughout the industry for a long time. So for that not to be mitigated in this new one does sound like an oversight or an intentional oversight. For me, because I only speak for me as the actor, you know, people, because Ivan and I, we've had long conversations about this, and he was saying, well, Ernie, we were, and he was explaining it. Those guys got together in Martha's Vineyard and came with the idea and wrote the script, and I'm I'm a guy who just comes in and gets a paycheck. Yeah. Not a very big paycheck, I might add. But, um, so, you know. Ernie, so, this morning, I just, I am, I have a lot of feelings. I don't, let me heat up my tea again. Like, oh what? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> no, no, it was, uh. You know, I got paid so little it was insulting. But the role was so amazing that I thought this is going to change my, my, I mean, I told my kids, you know, I get this role and I went in and I fought for it. I, I must have auditioned six times. I mean, I kept going back and they did screen tests and they, but they wouldn't give it up. And so um, when I finally got the role, I thought, man, we rehearsed. And then just before we said, shoot, they cut the character. Mm-hmm. And I felt like, I, the only reason I took no money was because it was an amazing role. And now there's not an amazing role. And I'm here and my wife and I are married. I love my wife. We've been together 45 years. But when I really 
kind of knew was she talked me down off the cliff because you know i'm from the project i just want to hurt somebody you know i'm i'm angry i understand nuck if you buck energy is very consistent <laughs> on this here show you know and it was a learning lesson and i always give harold Ramos credit because harold we talk about it and i could be honest about it but what got me with ghostbusters was that was one thing i mean to not be included mm -hmm. but what really got me with ghostbusters was when the movie came out, I had been working so hard as an actor that now my career is going to jump. They were doing Columbia, who did Ghostbusters, doing Soldier Story, which is predominantly a Black story. I couldn't get an audition from Columbia. Mm. I could not, I mean, I was like frozen out. And uh, where my career was going to be, this is going to be a big break. It was just the opposite for over three years. I mean, I couldn't get a film. And I don't know what that was about. But now I'm saying all this stuff from, me, me person, me, the actor. Now the studio can give all their justifications why. Why it isn't now, why they would release that photo now, I honestly can't tell you. And I, I'm not in the office or, you know, I just think it's, well, you know, mm -hmm. it is what it is. So, but once again, God opened doors and suddenly I was doing commercials that I never did before. I was doing TV stuff that I never did before. So, I've still managed to move forward in spite of. You know what, Ernie? This is interesting. And it ties to something that I spoke about with my therapist this week. <laughs> and it's this idea, though, of like toxic positive thinking, right? So right, it's almost yeah. this idea of like going through a tough situation or something that you don't necessarily agree with, but trying to bring the positive in things like, oh, but I, I at least I got commercials and at least I had a really great year and at least sure, I can pay yeah. my bills, which is also still toxic in its own way of thinking. So I'm actually really proud of you for calling this out because then you have our platform now to remind creators, storytellers and things of that nature to look larger than, you know, just the people that they're casting and the ways in which they're using the talent. But I want to ask you going into this new world of auditioning and of storytelling that you have, what are those things that you demand now before taking a project? Well, first off, it just got to a point where I don't audition. Oh, I love that flex. energy. Yes, flex. <laughs> Auditioning to me was like walking in a room and they're there looking at you and then you pull on your pants and you stand there and then they say, okay, thank you for coming in. I mean, it just felt, it felt that. So I stopped a few years ago. I just like, no, if you really want me to audition, if something was so special. That's a boundary. That's a good boundary. Yeah. The kind of stuff they'd be asking me to do. No, I'm not. For, I'm not auditioning. If it feels uncomfortable that I, I don't feel comfortable with it, then I don't want to do it. Well, here's to setting boundaries, being <laughs> bold, and knowing your worth. It's exactly what it is. That's what this year is about. Ernie, we could speak to you forever. This has been such a joy. But we like to end every podcast the same way. And that's why I'm filling in this question. So if you could help us with that. Sure. It is, my Black is powerful because... My Black is powerful because it is God's demonstration of what is possible. It is God's light. It is a beacon to all those who would deny anyone or anything because of their Blackness. You know, my grandmother would say, you know, Jesus said he's the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Mm -hmm. You are the example of what's possible. Mm -hmm. I want to be the example and and being black is it's not limiting and you should not limit yourself but once again i don't put my trust in man yeah 
Oh my gosh, that's beautiful. Yeah, you are an example of black history and black excellence. So thank you for taking the time to chat with us today and telling us your story and literally being a black legend. <laughs> we appreciate it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thank you both. I appreciate you taking the time and I'm honored, really. The Table is Ours is produced by us, Kirby Dixon and Amira Lawali. This episode was also produced by McKamey Lynn and Aisha Jordan and edited by Melissa Kaplan. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. The Table is Ours was created by Lifetime. Subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week.